morning. Several weeks ago when I was writing the message uh, for today, it was actually Easter weekend, and I was writing this message, and, and my in-laws came uh, for Easter weekend, and they brought, among some of the junk that they brought for the kids, they brought this little chicken, and, and uh, not a real chicken, which we have real chickens now, which shocks me that we have real chickens now, but we have real chickens, but, but this was a toy, and it was about this big. I mean, it was kind of big toy. It looked almost the size of a real chicken. And you punched a wing or some, a foot or something, and it would start making this noise and this song. And, and during the song, about five times during the song, it, the chicken would pause in the song, and its tail feathers would pop up, and it would drop a plastic Easter egg out of its hind side <laughs> onto the, the counter or wherever you had this little thing. And it was really, quite honestly, very annoying. And, uh, and, you know, and the whole discussion about where does the egg come out and all that was, I didn't want to have that discussion with it. In fact, I learned a whole lot about the biology of a chicken in this. I, th- I said, no, it doesn't come out of its rear end. It comes out of, you know, another part, just like where babies come from, that whole discussion. And like, no, it actually comes out of the rear end, which is really gross. And, and uh, that we eat those eggs and put them in our refrigerator. It just bothers me greatly. But, but in the process, this chicken would do this. And now the kids kind of use this chicken to annoy one another. And that's kind of the role of grandparents is you take something to the house, it's noisy and loud and stupid and, and then leave. And, and, and so... That's what they did, and so the kids were anointing one another with this chicken, and the next morning, I heard the boys from my study, and and the volume was getting louder and louder, and the intensity of the conversation was escalating, and I thought, "Uh uh-oh, I better go, and as I turned the corner, the chicken goes flying across the room (laughs) and broke, which in my heart of hearts, I thought, thank you, Jesus. But, but I had to discern what was going on in the process. And my younger one had told the older one, don't start that thing again. Don't start that thing again. And he kept starting it, annoying his brother. And finally, the little one punched the chicken and, and, and sent the chicken flying across the room into a couple of pieces. And in the conversation, even though I really want to say, thank you, son, you know, that's not a good dad at that point, right? I mean, you do that later. In, in, in that moment, you, you, have to, you have to talk to your kid and help him. And I said, son, we can't express our frustration in that way. And he said, why? And, uh, you know, I told him 10 times not to do it. You know how we are. We want to make excuses and defend ourselves and blame it on somebody else and shift. That's all human beings do that well. And, and he's learned it, you know, from his mom and, 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 and from his dad. And from his siblings and from his grand, right? We, we, we all teach each other this. And, and so uh, I said, son, you can't do that. And so we go in a couple of verses we've memorized this year. Uh, one of them is 1 Corinthians 10, 13, right? Which the temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. And, and he will not allow the temptation to be greater than your stand. And when you are tempted, he will show you the way out so that you can endure. And in that conversation, hey, son, there was a way out for, for you to endure here. Another, you know, verse we've memorized this year is Galatians 5, uh, which says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentle. Uh, I mean, in self-control. And, and in the process of, of these verses, I went to those two verses because they have hidden them in their heart. And, and I said, son, that, that's not self-control. And you got to demonstrate self-control in this process. And then he looked at me and he said, Dad, I got a question for you. My nine-year-old. And he said, well, do you think I'll ever grow to the point where I show self-control every time? 
It's a hard question, right, for the pastor. Hard, hard question. And uh, I said, I have to get back with you on that one. (laughs) What would you say? And and in the process, I said, we'll talk about that at dinner tonight. Dad's got to go. And, you know, and thinking through that, and in the conversation with him, I, you know, I, I'm not sure that I have the right answer. And for quite honestly, I'm not sure I have any answer. Uh, but I do know this. I'm 42 years old, and I haven't gotten there where I show self-control, you know, perfectly every time. And, and in the thought process of asking uh, that, the, the best answer that I could come up with is I, it has to be possible. Right? It has to be possible in Christ for us to grow to the point where we stay in Christ and that we show self-control every time. It's not possible for us to do it on our own, but it is possible for us to do it in Christ all the time. And if it's possible one time, it's possible all the time. And Jesus wouldn't have told us to walk under his submission and his authority and do it that way if it weren't possible to do it. And so if it's possible one time, it's possible every time. And so the best answer I could come up with, is it is possible. And so I, you know, I got to the office and I asked a couple of staff members, I said, do you demonstrate self-control all the time? And you know, they laughed and said no. And I said, let me ask you this. Do you know anybody in your life who demonstrates self-control all the time? And, and one of my staff members says, I, I don't run in those circles. <laughs> and, uh, and, and I said, yeah, I, I guess I don't either, right? But we, we get better over time, right? When I mean, we try to be better today than we were yesterday and, or where we were last month or we were five years ago. And, and we want to get better But self-control, listen, it only comes when we walk by the Spirit. Only. It's a fruit of the Spirit. And it's the mature believer that walks by the Spirit consistently. And it's the mature believer that walks by the Spirit on a regular basis. And we looked at what it means to be gone for good over the last four weeks. And really the truth is there are some things that need to be and can be gone for good. But the struggle with the flesh is here for good until we meet Jesus face to face. We've been in this verse of scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, for five weeks today. And I hope you've memorized that verse of scripture, and I hope you've meditated on that verse of scripture. But, but what that passage says is that anyone, anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and a new life has begun. At the point of salvation, when we believe in Jesus, for all of us, the old nature, the sin nature is crucified, is cut out, is circumcised away, and is gone for good. And we were under the power of sin. We were under the power of the sin nature before Christ freed us. Romans 7 talks about how, how Paul talks about how before he came to Christ, how he did the things he didn't want to do and how he doesn't do the things that he wanted to do. And, and instead, we, that's the way it works. And all, but because we were under the control of sin nature. Listen, he's talking about his former life when he says that. He's not talking about his current life and reality in Christ. He's talking about his former life. And he says, but once that sin nature was removed, Romans 8, the next chapter, he says, we are under no obligation to the flesh. None. We are not obligated to fulfill the desires of the flesh. And instead of being under the power of sin nature, well, now we're alive in Christ. And we have the power of the Holy Spirit of God working in our lives. And we can resist sin. And we don't have to let sin rule in our bodies. And we can say gone to good to those repeated negative behaviors, to those hang-ups, habits, and hurts. And the question I want to ask you today is, do you have some sin in your life that keeps tripping you up over and over and over again? 
And, and you read Romans 7 and you think, yep, that's me. I don't do what I want to do. I do what I don't want to do. And, and, you just say, and your, your cop out is, is that's just me. Right? That's just my personality. That, my dad had a problem with anger, so I have a problem with anger. My mom was an alcoholic, so I'm an alcoholic. And, and, and those repeated negative behaviors have no place. Listen to me. They have no place in the life of a believer. And, and if you've got some sin or some hang-up or, or, or some trap that keeps tripping you up, you need to see those things gone for good. Hang-ups that keep you from living this victorious life can be gone for good. And you don't need to let them keep eating away at you, destroying you over and over. You can gain control over harmful habits when you live in Christ, when you place yourself under the submission of the Holy Spirit of God in your life. Hang-ups, habits, and hurts can be gone for good. Here's the truth of the matter. We've all been hurt, all of us. We all bear wounds on our heart from where others have hurt us. And the truth of the matter is, is we have all hurt others too. And, and so we don't need to wallow in our hurts. And, and we don't need to let them turn us cold. Hurts will either produce a hard heart, we said this last week, or a broken heart if we let them. They'll produce a hard heart or a broken heart, but God will help us. And he will take those hurts and he, he can see them gone for good. He can exchange our damaged heart for a tender heart. He can reach in and take that heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. And that's the root of what we've been talking about for the last four or five weeks in, in this series. And if you've missed any of it, I want to encourage you, go back online and watch it and rewatch it and watch it again and again and again. The passages I, I want you to study, Romans 8, Galatians 5, Ephesians 4. Romans 8, Galatians 5, Ephesians 4. I want you to meditate on those three passages, Romans 8, Galatians 5, and Ephesians 4, and gain the victory in your life from sin and habits and hangups and hurts. But let's be completely honest in this story because there are some things in our lives that will never be gone for good as long as we're alive. Right? Paul talks about this. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He talks about that where he says, my old self has been crucified with Christ. That is the old sin nature. It has been crucified with Christ. And he goes on and says, it's no longer I that live, but it is Christ who lives in me. When we sur surrender to God and when we live in Christ and we find ourselves in him and we find our identity in him, when we do that, we can say that we are crucified with Christ. But it's not a once and done proposition. Why? Because we still go on living. Look what he says in the next verse. This life that I now live in the body. In other words, I'm going on living in my flesh. I have a body that I live in while I'm on earth, right? It's just part of the process. As long as we live on earth, we have a body. When we don't have a body that's living, we're not on earth anymore, right? And so as long as we're living on earth, we've got this fleshly body that we live in. And he says, in that body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And so our flesh is not gone for good until we enter eternity with Jesus Christ. We live in our bodies with the weaknesses that come with that. And it's not until we're with him in heaven with our resurrected bodies that we will be free from the flesh. And our weaknesses gone for good. That here we live in Christ. But one day we will get to live with Christ forever and ever. And so while on earth, we got to put up with some things. We got to put up with temptation. Why? It's not gone for good. 
Temptation has not gone for good. And that's the frustration we all share, that, that when will our temptations end? When will we ever get to the place where we're not tempted over and over and over again, and perhaps daily, on a daily basis, that we wouldn't be tempted? And sometimes we just want to take a break, don't we? Sometimes we just, you know, we need a siesta from, from temptation, and we want to go, you know, from the constant struggle. We want to take a time out and, and go into the locker room and call halftime or something and, and find that place. Will I ever get to the point where I can let my guard down? And, and quite frankly, the answer to that is no. Not this side of eternity. There will not be a, po- a moment in time where you can let your guard down. We've, we've done this before. I've taught you this before. There are three sources of temptation. If you don't remember what they are, I want you to write them down again. Okay, three sources of temptation. The world, the devil, and the flesh. The world, the devil, and the flesh. Now, you can get away from the first one, the world, right? You could, you know, get a shotgun out and blow your television up, get rid of the internet, you know, move to the wilderness where you don't drive by billboards or casinos or whatever. You know, you'd you'd never attend the party that has a fifth of Jack Daniels or cupcakes, whatever your temptation happens to be. And, and, And you can get away from the whole world, right? You could go live like a monk, You can move to the Himalayas and become a monk and take a vow of silence and wear the robe and stare at a wall all day long. But even in that scenario, can you escape temptation? Listen, I'm sure the devil knows your address. And even if he doesn't know your address, you still have your flesh with you. You still took it with you to the monk and to the monastery. If you went to the moon, listen, your flesh is going with you. You can't escape from every temptation. You can't, right? You can't escape the flesh. It's with you. And so you can try to isolate yourself from temptation, but that's not going to work. You can never get away from your flesh, right? And as a, you know, as a youth pastor, I used to teach parents of teenagers all the time. Listen, the goal is not to isolate your child. You can't. You can homeschool them, and you can send them to a Christian school, and you can do all those things. But listen, you're not isolating them. They're going to go into the world. The, the goal is not to isolate them. The goal is to insulate them, where you let God come into their heart and change their lives, and he goes with them wherever they go, and the Spirit of God is walking in and through and breathing through that child, and you turn them uh, over to the Lord, and you let the Lord insulate their hearts. You can insulate, but you can't isolate. I want you to turn over to Colossians chapter 3, and I want to dive into a passage of Scripture today and look at Paul's words on how the mature believer goes about living in the flesh. Colossians, the book of Colossae written to the church at, I mean, Colossians written to the church at Colossae, right? It's one of the churches in the New Testament, which was the beginning of Christianity, right? And so he is writing to basically new believers, which most of the New Testament is written to new believers. Why? Because the church was brand new. Christianity was brand new when the New Testament was being written. And so he's written these letters to all of these churches and and uh, I, I love our, our children's ministry, preschool ministry. They sent home a few weeks ago. I'm assuming you got it too. The, a CD with the books of the Bible on it. And uh, that little song that Lissa did where she sings the books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That, that whole deal. I got to tell you, I'm so tired of that song. We listen to it all the time in the car with the kids, you know, and they're singing it all the time. I got that jingle in my head. I can't get it out. Now, here's the good news. I got a doctorate from seminary, and I can finally recite the books of the Bible in order. 
you know, to a tune. And, and, and all of my children can do it. I got one that can't spell any of them, but she can recite all of them in, in order uh, and, and, and understands it. And so, you know, the other day, Lemley and I are driving in the car and the church commercial comes on on the radio. And you know where I talk about the church at Ephesus and the church at Colossae and the church. And, and, and she says, there's a church at Ephesus? And I said, yeah. She said, should we go there? And, and, and you know, and so we're having this whole conversation. I said, do you remember the book of Ephesians? She said, yeah, Galatians, Ephesians. You know, and she goes to the, and, and I said, yes, that's the church at Ephesus. And that's the book of Ephesians. Apart from that little CD, we don't get to have that conversation, right? And, and so we're, we're having it. But this is one of the letters written to one of the churches at, at Colossae. And it's one of the ones he had just planted. And so all these letters, he's writing to his friends, right? Churches he's planted, new people in the faith that he's been discipling. And so what we do when we read these letters, we get to look over the shoulder of the mentor as he's discipling these believers and how he teaches these Christians to be mature. So what advice do we see Paul giving new believers about living in the flesh? Look at chapter 3, verse uh, 5. So put to death, he says, the sinful earthly things lurking within you, right? You can't isolate because it's there within you. And so he's saying, put those things to death, kill them. Pretty drastic and pretty severe, but that's the same advice that Jesus gives us. Remember the very first week of Gone for Good, we said that Jesus showed us the way. He died to self and he died for sin. And so we are to die to sin and we are died to die to self. And when we say die to self, we're talking about the flesh, that we die to that. And Paul is painting this word picture in Colossians. And uh, he's saying that if we have to live here in our flesh, we gotta make sure its power is cut off. And we gotta make sure that this power is destroyed by any means necessary. It won't be gone for good until we're on the other side. So we gotta deal with our flesh every single day. And that's maturity. Listen, spiritual maturity is not marked by the absence of temptation, but by the presence of strength and the presence of victory when temptation comes. A mature Christian is not going to be tempted less. I don't find that anywhere in Scripture that a mature Christian is tempted less. In fact, I tweeted that out this week, and several people commented on it and said, no, I think a mature Christian is tempted more which is probably true, right? That the, that the bullseye has been put on your head and the devil uses your flesh and baits us and tempts us. But, but the mature Christian, though they're not tempted less, should be expected to not fall to temptation over and over and over again. And if you find that's not the case in your life, maybe you're not maturing. And Paul is dealing with these people and helping them mature. And Paul says just two, two verses later, after listing some of the traps of the flesh, he, he comes back in verse 7. Look at it. And in verse 7, he says, you used to do these things. Circle those words, used to. You used to do these things when your life was still a part of this world. You used to act this way. You used to fall to temptation. You used to be powerless. You used to have a sin problem, but now there is a different way of life for you. That is maturity. So what are the marks of a maturing Christian? And what does that look like? Certainly, it has to mean that they don't fall to temptation every time, right? But what else characterizes a mature believer? What, what is it about a mature believer that insulates them on the inside from all that temptation? Now, back up to the very first part of Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, and let's look at how Paul describes it. Verse 1. 
Since you have been raised to a new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven. Now, I want to show you the markings in my Bible here as I've marked up mine. Throw that on the screen if you would. I underline the subject one time, the verb two times. I circle the direct object, and I put phrases in parentheses, okay? Whether they're preposition or adjective, phrase, I put them in parentheses. So since you, that you're the subject there, have been raised. Now, I wrote passive above that because I want you to see that, and it's very important. You don't raise yourself, You have been raised. God does that to you. He is doing the action in you and on you. You've been raised to what? A new life. What kind of new life? Well, the phrase describes it. A new life with Christ. So since that has happened, this is an if-then structure. So since that's happened, then we do this. Since you have been raised, you didn't do that. Christ did that in you. Well, what are we to do since that's been done? We set our sights. Now, where do we set our sights? On the realities of of heaven. It is the picture of a sniper looking through a scope. That's the word picture. We set our sights, laser focus on the realities of heaven. That's active. That's what you and I do. We set our sights on the realities of heaven. A growing Christian knows where they go and they know where they're going. That's the first mark of a mature believer. The mature believer lives in anticipation of heaven. They know where they're going. Mature, no. And they not only know, they look forward to it. They know Christ's words are true, that Jesus said, if I go away, I'm going away to do what? I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And mature believers know that, and they believe that, and they put faith in that and confidence in that, and they live with expectation for that, that that we have a life focused on eternity. And listen, when we focus on eternity, the world loses a lot of its lure. And it loses a lot of its luster when we're focused on eternity. Listen, when we're focused on eternity, you don't spend a lot of your energy, your time, and your money on things that are only going to satisfy you for a little while, right? You're smarter than that because you know where you're going. And so you think more about what eternity means to you. Now, that does not mean that the things of this world could never bring you pleasure or shouldn't. That's not what that means. You can enjoy the things of this world. What it means is that I'm happier about heaven and I'm happier about eternity than I am of the things in this world. And, and, and so consequently, I look for ways to use the things in this temporary here today and gone tomorrow world to impact people's eternity. Because I know where I'm going and so I wanna use the toys in this little world to impact people's eternity because I'm more excited about eternity than I am here today. And so your new life with Christ is all about being with him. That's the preposition. That one day we're going to be with him. Today we are in him. And when we are with him, uh, we are citizens of heaven. And as citizens of heaven, uh, we place ourselves under the authority of Christ, which is the second mark of a mature believer. The mature believer lives under the authority of God or under God's authority. Listen how Paul puts it in the rest of verse one. He says, so since you've been raised with Christ, you set your sights on the realities of heaven, Watch what he says, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Now, throw my markings up there if you would. Christ sits where? In the place of honor. What kind of honor? The place of honor at God's right hand. I wrote up above it, throne. Do you see what he's trying to say there? That Christ sits on a throne. What does that imply? Authority that he sits in the place of honor on the throne in heaven in a place of authority and that we, we act out on earth as it is in heaven. What is it? How is it in heaven? Under the authority of God. And so the key to overcoming your flesh is seeing your pro- and seeing your problems gone for good is living under the authority of Christ 
in your life. We've been saying this every week. I've said it five different ways for the last five different weeks. We've said that walk by the Spirit. We've said let the Spirit lead you. We've said to truly surrender to uh, Jesus, to give every area of your life to Christ. All of those things and all of those wordings and phrasings are all the definition of what it means to walk in Christ under the authority of God. And when Jesus stepped out of heaven onto earth, he had the same decision to make. Right? He took on human flesh with all of the limitations that came with that. And he had a conscious decision to submit to what? To submit to the authority of the Father. In the Garden of Gethsemane, on the last night here on earth, he, he prays this prayer and he's wrestling with it. And what, what is the wrestle? What's the match that he's wrestling there? My will or God's will? That's what he's wrestling with. My will or God's will. He had to face the struggle of flesh and spirit. And his submission to God's authority was marked by that decision. That I will follow your will, Father. Not my will. Your will. I will fulfill what you've asked me to do. The third mark. That's the third mark of a mature believer. The mature believer lives out the Spirit's wishes. Now, how do we do that? By aligning our thoughts with God's thoughts. Look at verse 2. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. Throw the markings up there. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. Put our thoughts in heaven. Put our thoughts after God's thoughts. You know that Einstein was once quoted as saying, I want to know God's thoughts. The rest are details. I want to know God's thoughts. The rest, just details. Here was a man who knew more about the created universe and this temporal reality than anybody who lived before him and, and, and maybe since. And what did he say? He pointed his own thoughts toward heaven. And was he a believer like you and I are believers? I don't know. I haven't studied that. But he was brilliant. And in his brilliance, he said, one thing is clear. After searching out all the earth has to offer, he decided it was better to focus on the creator than the creation. And that the creation is evidence of a creator. And I'd rather spend my energy thinking on the creator than on the creation. Listen, as children of God, we are spiritual beings. And we have the Spirit of God dwelling inside of us. And if we believe in Jesus and if we follow Jesus as a spiritual being, then we have access, listen, to the mind of Christ. To the mind of Christ. There are mysteries in this world that scientists and philosophers and physicists cannot explain. And they cannot understand them. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16, that... that we understand these things for we have the mind of Christ. Now think through that for a moment. The very mind of Christ. What does that mean? We have his thoughts. We can know his will for our lives. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at how habits are formed. Do you remember the pyramid? And I showed you how these habits are formed through repeated behaviors and actions, which are the results of decisions and that decisions are made based on our emotions and our thoughts how we feel and how we think you remember what we said the prescription for all that is Romans chapter 12 verse 2 Paul said what don't copy the behavior and don't copy the customs of this world how do you not do that you let God transform you into a new person how by changing the way you think God is going to transform your mind. He's saying, don't be like the world. 
And don't be how you used to be, but change your life. How? By letting God change your mind. And that we have access to the mind of Christ. To think with the mind of Christ begins with submission to the Father. It begins with submission to Christ by tapping into Jesus, the source of all of our lives. The fourth mark of a mature believer is the mature believer lives on Christ's supply. At salvation, we trade our old life for a new life, and we have real life. The old life is traded for a new life so that we can have the real life. Look at verse 3. For you died to what? To this life, and your real life is hidden with Christ in God. Throw the markings up. For you died to what? To this life. That's the old nature. And your real life is hidden where? With Christ. How? In God. That's how this plays out in our lives. And so it means that we plug into him. It means we turn to him constantly for help. We turn to him for strength on a moment by moment or a daily basis. We never get to the point that we don't need him. In fact, once we're in heaven, where do you think our strength is going to come from? Him. Not not, not for us. We we don't get to the point where we don't need him anymore. We still need him. Look at verse 4. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in all of his glory. Throw the markings up if you would. Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world. You will share in what? In all of his glory. So he is your life, and in your life you are sharing in his glory. In other words, you will forever be plugged into his power. And you'll be forever plugged into his glory. The new life, listen, it is not a one and done thing. It is not a once and for all. Sure, you make a decision, and you say a prayer, and you mark a card, or you walk an aisle. But listen, that's the first step in the journey. It is a journey. That's the reason we wrote the mission statement to help all people of all ages all the time, what? Advance in their journey with Christ. It is a journey. Imagine if you applied that once and done strategy to any other area in your life. Well, well, you take a job. You meet with the employer. You agree on a pay package. They give you the job description and the start date, and, and, and the date rolls around, and you stay home. And they call you, and they call you, and you ignore their calls. You never go into the office. How long do you think before they stop paying you? Not very long, right? What about your marriage? And marriages are really interesting things. Weddings are really interesting things. Yesterday, we we had uh, four ball games. We had two soccer games at Mohawk Park, which I'm not even sure that's still in Oklahoma. And, which is unbelievable, by the way, brand new soccer complex out there. It took me 19 minutes to drive the three blocks into the driveway because there were thousands and thousands and thousands of cars going in and out of this place. We left an hour and a half later, cars still lined up for a mile trying to get in here. People everywhere directing traffic. Listen, Little League Soccer, biggest church in Oklahoma. (laughs) By far. And then we had two baseball games in big speed. This is as far away from Mohawk as you can get. <laughs> baseball complex filled with kids and parents and people. And, and just unbelievable. Listen to me. I have been so convinced over the last several years. And, and I am becoming more and more and more and more and more and more and more convinced of it. The largest mission field in Tulsa, Oklahoma is Little League Sports. And their families. 
And I'm telling you, when you watch it and you look at it, it is so heartbreaking to watch families having given their soul to a ball. And the gospel and what we're talking about here has got to go into that mission field. Listen, we got to turn it upside down. And you don't do that by creating a league, okay? That's one strategy. You you don't do that by creating leagues that don't keep score. That's of the devil. Listen, (laughs) we, we, we have got to, we have got to, we have got to, we have got to. Listen to me. Some of you who are empty nesters and your kids are gone and you know a little bit about sports, listen, we got to mobilize a team of missionaries to go be little league coaches in every one of these leagues. We got to infiltrate the whole system from the inside. We got to go and listen, a little league coach has as much influence as mom and dad do in this culture. We got to go win these families to Jesus and we got to put missionaries on the field. And some of you got to be trained. We got to get a system together. We got to hire some staff. We got to figure this thing out and we got to go into the largest mission field in Tulsa, Oklahoma. If if you want to reach people that have never been reached, you got to do what you've never done and we're, and we're going to go get them I'm convinced that listen he's put it on my heart and he's put it in I, I've been thinking about this for week years actually so yesterday we have four ball games and two weddings <laughs> two at Mohawk two at Bixby one wedding at TU and one in Manford <laughs> this is my day this is Saturday so you used to preach better. I used to have energy. <laughs> and one of the weddings last night in, in, in Manfred, it beat all I have ever seen. I mean, it, it was a fairy tale come true. I wish to God my 13-year-old daughter had not seen that. I, I mean, her, her brain is just doing it, and I'm watching the dollar signs, just unbelievable. You know, and, and the, the dad of the bride, I heard his sister say to him, hey, you, you got a million-dollar wedding. And I'm thinking, because he spent a million dollars. He got exactly what he paid for, right? And it's amazing, and it's fantastic. I mean, just, and, and, and oh, I mean, the, the bride, and Limley was the flower girl. She'd never even seen a wedding. And, and, uh, and the Bride and the flower girl, listen, they come riding up in a carriage behind a horse. <laughs> Could it get more ridiculous, right? I mean, it, it is so unbelievable. I mean, it was, it was, and people had a great time. I mean, Meredith, they stayed till 10 o'clock last night because they did it better than I've ever seen it done. And, and But you just think through that whole thing in marriage, and, you know, I don't know really what all that's about, the tux and the dress and all of those things, right? The only time you ever wear a tux, ever, right? And, and uh, you, you get up, and I, the dress and all of that, and the father of the bride mortgages his house so his daughter can pretend to be a princess for one day, right? <laughs> and she has invited all of us to her kingdom, And we're all going to, and, and the big day comes and you stand before the altar, right? And you're nervous and you're sweating in somebody else's shoes. <laughs> Think through that for a moment. The biggest commitment of your life, you're not even wearing your own shoes. And, and then she comes through the door uh, or on a carriage, right? Behind, you know, the horse and, and the princess and the ball and all of that with glass shoes on. And, and the doors open and she's more beautiful than you've ever seen her. 
And she walks down the aisle, and a preacher says some stuff that nobody's paying attention to. And you say your I do's, you make your commitments and your vows, you exchange the rings, and then you go to the reception. And you dance for the very last time in your life. <laughs> right? And you hug all the extended family. You don't know their names, but you had to invite them. And, and the, the, you, you know, this is how it plays out, right? And you say goodbye, you do the dance, you do the reception, the whole thing. And, and, and then the limo pulls up and it's time to go, right? And, and your bride says, honey, let's go. We're going to the hotel or catch the flight or whatever. And you say, no, nah, I think I'll sit that part out. crazy i mean that, that that is that's not it would never happen right and you say well you know i'm gonna go back to my college apartment with that ratty couch and a playstation <laughs> and to all the single men let me just say it's not attractive that you can score well on a playstation game that's not a quality for maturity or or your future put it up and grow up and maybe you go on the honeymoon, right? And you go on the honeymoon, and then, you know, you get back from the honeymoon, and you say, yeah, but we don't need to live together. Nobody, listen, nobody makes a commitment with the intention of breaking it, right? Nobody does that. But many times in the church, I watch believers do that. I watch it over and over. They make the decision or they make the commitment or they mark the card and they say they want Jesus to come in their life and they want him to call all the shots and then they go out of here and they live just like they used to just like they used to. Look at verse seven. Chapter three, verse seven. You used to do these things when your life was still a part of this world, but you aren't like that anymore, right? You're not, you're not like that. You're not a part of this world anymore. You are different, and you need to start acting like you are different. And, and I think in some ways my son was tapping into something that we all expect when, when he said, do you think I ever get to the point where I practice self-control perfectly every time. And I think what he was tapping into is that expectation that all of us have that will get better over time. See, that, that's the expectation, that the me of next year is better than the me of today, right? And, and that we do that in every area of our lives almost, right? I mean, and finances, next year, you know, I'm gonna be more responsible with my money. My health, next year I'll exercise and, and, and I'm going to eat better. My family, you know, ne next year I, I'm going to spend time with my kids. That's what New Year's resolutions are all about, right? That, that next year I'm going to do all of these things. But how does that play out in reality? H how many of us have a perfect record with our New Year's resolutions? But you look back on your life, and when you look back, and you, and you, you look with a little insight into who you were and who you are, and I, I would hope that you would say you have matured in at least one or two areas of your life, hopefully more than that, right? But, but the me of this week is better than the me of five years ago, certainly. Am I growing in areas in my spiritual life that really matter? Am I growing? Do I desire to spend time with God? A am I more dependent on Him today? Do I look for ways to share Christ with others? 
Do I see commitments and compassion increasing in my life? What, what, what about my personal life? Do, do I have more or less conviction th- than I did before? Do I look for ways to be more holy or am I looking for ways to cut corners in, in my life? Do I see myself as good enough or, or do I want to be better? And if you think the level of maturity that you had last year is good enough, and if you don't see yourself increasing in the marks of maturity, you you need to ask yourself a really tough question. Am I a believer? See, if if I were the devil, I would convince millions of orthodox people that the way you become a follower of Jesus is is through a class and you adhere to the catechism and go through confirmation and a priest or a bishop puts a ring on your head and and, and you you walk through a ceremony and all of a sudden you're a follower of Jesus I I would convince people of that you know what else I would do I, I would convince millions of evangelicals that the way that you become a follower of Christ is that you pray a prayer. Or you check a card, or you just walk an aisle, and, and that that's it. Once and done, we're done. And salvation happens in a moment. But listen, it is a process. And what happens in a moment continues in the process. You say, how how do you know that? Listen to me. Jesus is the author of salvation. I'm working with a publisher, with Broadman Holman, on on a book that's supposed to be released next February. But you know, I've got about five or six, seven books that I've started that that aren't finished. And, uh, you know, I, I don't even know if they will be. Maybe one of you can help me finish. But I'm, not, I'm found, I'm not really a good author. I, I, I'm a great editor. And part of the reason I'm not a great author is because I, I don't finish the story. And I don't finish what I start. But God is the author of salvation. And salvation is not just that moment when you come to Christ. Salvation is the maturing process in your life. Salvation is all of that until we meet Jesus face to face and then on. And he's the author of that. And listen, he, we got to believe if he's the author, he's a good author. The best author, right? Every story that's any good is because it mimics the real story that we're all connected to. Any story that you are attracted to is because it is in some way a depiction on a microcosm of the big story that God is writing. And so God is writing this story. And listen, he, he, he doesn't get to the climax and stop. He, he, he goes on through the denouement and he goes all the way through the process in this literary style and he concludes it and he resolves it to the nth degree. He is the best author. And he is the author of salvation. And he is writing the story of salvation on and in his kids' hearts. Listen, he doesn't quit in the story. And he didn't lay the book aside. And so if you're reading your story and you're looking at the story of salvation in your heart and it was, your story is, I filled out a card. 
or I prayed a prayer, or I walked down an aisle and I met with someone, or at a vacation Bible school or a youth camp, I did this, that, or the other, and that's your story? Listen, that's not the story of salvation. And God would never be the author of that and then close the book and lay it aside. He wouldn't write that story. And if that's your story, I, I got to take you to 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 13, where Paul, the same author of Colossians, comes back and says, you got to test yourself. And you have to examine your salvation to see if Jesus is really in it. And if Jesus is not really in it, of course you have failed the test. And if you're failing the test today and Jesus is not really in your life, you say, well, I don't know if Jesus is in my life. Are you kidding me? Jesus, the Son of God, who spoke all of this into existence, lives in little old you, and you don't know it? You would know it. Because he would be writing the story of salvation in you. He's writing the story of salvation through you. You can't miss that. And I want you to examine yourself today. Because everything we've been teaching over the last five weeks, listen, it's nonsense to those who don't know Christ. But for those who know Christ and salvation is being written on them and in them and through them, it is the path that we live in and on and through. And so before I move on to the next series next week, which is going to be awesome, called Hold On 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 the Home. And the family that blank together stays together. We're going to fill in those blanks for about four weeks. And before I move on to that, I I, got to ask you, are you in the faith? Would you pray with me? Here at Battle Creek, would you bow your heads? At Midtown, would you bow? If you're watching online somewhere today, would you just bow your head and every week I ask this question but listen today I'm doing it with a whole new sense of urgency and a whole new sense of expectancy and anticipation how many of you in here today under the sound of my voice would say Pastor Alex when you talk about salvation and God being the author of salvation and writing the story in me and on me and through me, I, I know that's being done in me. I know that I got salvation settled. I, that, that thing is happening in me. Jesus is a part of my life. I, I live and breathe knowing that. I understand that and I'm, I'm fully aware of the reality of the presence of Christ in my life. I know that. Would you just slip your hand up all across all of our environments today? Midtown, would you just slip your hand up? Okay, you can put them down. Lots and lots of hands. And we thank the Lord for salvation. But some of you couldn't raise your hand. And some of you were so tempted to raise your hand because you have before when that question has been asked. But you know in your heart, salvation's not your reality. And that author has not pinned any of that on you yet. And you've had an experience or you had a moment or you had a, 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 a day, but this is not an ongoing story in your life. And we talk about knowing Jesus, you, you don't know him. 
and you don't know if he's there. But I want to pray for you. If that's you in all of our environments, you say, I, I don't know, Pastor, but I want you to pray for me. Would you just slip your hand up all across the room and let me see it? Just say, pray for me. I, I, I don't know, okay? Anybody else, all right? Several men. Anybody else? Pray for me, Pastor. I, I, I'd like to know that. Just slip it up. At Midtown, if that's you, would you just slip your hand up and hold it up high? I'm about to pray. Last time I'm going to ask, you say, that's me. Pray for me, Pastor. Include me in that prayer. Would you just slip your hand up and let me see it? Okay, okay, okay. All right. Several hands. And let me just say what the author of salvation is doing in this moment. He's writing on the hearts of those of you who are already know him and already sensitive to him. He's writing a prayer in you. And he's writing a prayer through you. You're already sensitive to that. He's, he's leading you there. You're praying for men and women and boys and girls right now who are about to come to Christ and cross that threshold. You're part of the story. He's writing you in the story right now. And so-and-so was praying. And she was begging and he was pleading with God for salvation to spring up out of the ground in the lives of people at that moment. And Father, I pray right now for men and women and boys and girls under the sound of my voice that you would win the victory today in all of their lives. And salvation would spring up from you in their lives and a new thing would happen and the old would be gone and and a new life would begin in lots and lots of people in our presence today. Win the victory in their hearts, Lord. I'm praying for them. And if today you want to trust Christ and you want to give your life to Jesus and become and be a follower of Jesus Christ, of Nazareth, would you pray with me right now and say, Dear God, I know I'm a sinner, but today I ask you to forgive me for all of my sin. Jesus, come into my life to be my Lord. You call the shots in my life. Come in as my Savior and my forgiver. I want to be a follower of Christ. In the best way that I know how, I turn my back on my sin and myself, and I trust Jesus alone for salvation. And I want to thank you, Jesus, for saving me. And if you just prayed that prayer and you meant it with all of your heart, it's the wisest decision you've ever made to trust Christ for salvation, to become a follower of Jesus. And for the rest of us who already know Christ, would you just pray right where you are, midtown and here and online, would you just pray? And would you just say, God, would you let the realities of salvation? Romans 8. Galatians 5 and Ephesians 4. Would you let those realities play out in my life? Would you let those things that are not of you be gone for good? Would you give me the tenacity to deal with the flesh on a daily basis in your power and by your grace? And Father, as you set your kids free individually, in thousands of people's lives. Would you do something corporately in our church that we can't explain as we truly become salt and light? In Jesus' name we pray, and together we all say amen and amen. Would you thank the Lord today for salvation and thank you for truth.